It's the 28th of September, and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 30th episode. We have traveled far in recent weeks in this podcast. We talked about Brexit with Sir Ivan Rogers in London. We also talked about private digital currencies with Grayscale's Michael Sonnenschein in New York. But today, we are back in Asia, connecting with Manila, where the Asian Development Bank's headquarters is situated. The ADB was founded back in 1966, and its mission remains to promote social and economic development in Asia. Today, the bank plays a large role in the region. In 2019, it made loan commitments amounting to $21.6 billion, while dispersing $16.5 billion. This year, so far, it has committed $11.2 billion in grants, technical assistance, loans, and private sector assistance to help its developing members in dealing with the ongoing pandemic. This is part of a $20 billion package that was announced back in April. The ADB also has an excellent research department, which produces regular forecasts and surveillance reports, along with thematic research. Our guest today comes from that department. Abdul Abiyad is director of the Macroeconomic Research Division at the ADB, where he oversees the ADB's flagship publication, The Asian Development Outlook. From 2000 to 2015, he was with the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., where he worked on the World Economic Outlook. His research has focused on financial sector development and international financial integration, fiscal policy, exchange rates and trade, economic resilience, and infrastructure. Abdul, welcome to Kopi Time. Pleasure to be here, Timur. Thanks, it's our pleasure, actually. Uh, look, um, we're gonna begin with your Asian Development Bank Outlook 2020, the update that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, tell us your key findings, conclusions, and perhaps also like the policy recommendations at the aggregate level. Sure, happy to do that. Um, so for your first key message is really that, you know, developing Asia, uh, I didn't think I would see it in my lifetime, but developing Asia will contract this year uh, by uh, our forecast is 0.7%. Uh, and this will be its first contraction in nearly six decades since the early 1960s. We do expect growth to rebound to 6.8% next year, but uh, that's not enough to get you back to the pre-crisis trend. So this is not a V-shaped recovery. Uh, second key message is that the downturn is broad-based. Um, Three-fourths of our uh, developing member economies, uh, so 33 out of ADB's 46 developing member economies are expected to contract this year. Um, it, there, there is very wide variation across the uh, subregion across different subregions, and uh, so you have some economies seeing double-digit declines, whereas a few uh, economies will be able to eke out positive growth this year, including China. Third key message uh, on inflation is that you know you have two offsetting forces: depressed demand, but all and low oil prices on the one hand. Then you have supply disruptions that can push prices up. But basically, the first two factors are stronger, and so we see inflation pretty subdued uh, at uh, just under 3% this year, and it'll fall further to closer to 2% next year, 2.3%. In terms of the risks uh, that we highlight in the report, really the main risk is the prospect of a prolonged COVID-19 pandemic, which really could derail the recovery. And we have a quantitative downside scenario uh, to think about how big those impacts might be. Uh, the two other risks that we highlight in the report are the possible escalation of trade and technology conflict between the US and China, as well as financial vulnerabilities in some economies in the region 
that could be exacerbated by a prolonged pandemic. Uh, on the policy side, it's really, uh, you know, we, we talk about uh, various policies that are needed. Um, a lot of it is actually on the on the micro level. We we if if you adopt the right policies, you don't have to generate a trade off between uh, addressing the health crisis and the and the economy. Uh, so you can actually in, 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 there's really no trade off. You 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 can uh, get the health uh, crisis under control while still allowing the economy to recover. And really, the priority has to be protecting lives and livelihoods. Um, lastly, uh, I wanted to let your listeners know that the Asian Development Outlook does cover the regional outlook and risks, but every every issue, and again, this report comes out twice a year, every issue we also deal with a thematic uh, topic, a development issue, and this uh, uh, ADO update that came out a couple of week, weeks ago looked at uh, the issue of wellness. I'm happy to chat more about that uh, later on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just for the time being, staying at the aggregate level, uh, Abdul, a couple of months ago, uh, you and your colleagues in ADB wrote a chapter in a book on COVID-19 in developing countries. Uh, you guys were early in the game. And in it, you had presented fairly detailed scenarios. And one of the scenarios was suggesting that about 22% of the global output loss this year would accrue in developing Asia. And I think your estimate was something in the range of $1.3 to $2 trillion worth of output loss, about 57 to 8.5% of developing Asia's GDP. So you just shared with us some of your forecasts. Um, consider the, the, your forecasts in the context of what you had written in the chapter. Are those estimates at risk of being revised up or down? At this stage, so we're we're actually in the in the process of updating those, and we will be releasing updated impact assessments uh, probably next month. And um, so I can't give you the exact figures, um, but uh, at this stage, what what we're seeing is that um, our the estimated impact on twenty twenty if. if is actually not going to change that much, and I can, uh, I'll explain why in a in a second. But what's uh, what's happening is that we're now expecting that 2021 will there there will be a bigger impact in 2021. Basically, because this whole crisis is uh, lasting longer than we had previously envisioned, some of the effect is really spilling in over to the next to next year. Um, so let me let me let me just give your listeners uh, some background on what we did exactly in the CPR uh, ebook chapter. And so what we did there was we used country-specific information on outbreak severity, stringency of containment, and uh, declines in mobility outside the home to to get a sense of how big the domestic declines would be in various economies in developing Asia. And we combined those. Uh, expected domestic demand declines with uh, the external hit, in many cases through tourism, for example. And we feed this through uh, the ADB's uh, multi-region input-output table to capture spillovers through trade and production linkages. And that's how we got those estimates that you mentioned. Now, so what's happened since we put those out? So in, the, in that report, what we assumed, so this we had done that analysis in late May, and uh, at that time, where 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 were we? You, uh, China looked like it had gotten things uh, contained. You hadn't. You were seeing th things rise elsewhere, but it was hard to tell how bad things would get. Um, so anyway, the assumption we made at that time was we said, okay, you know, uh, countries that have outbreaks, uh, they'll take you know min maybe three months at the short end to maybe six months to contain their outbreaks, and then they'll be able, once they do that, they'll 
gradually normalize activities. And so uh, really what we assumed there was that most of the hit to GDP would, would come in 2020 with minim minimal effects in 2021 and beyond. Now, since uh, that uh, analysis was released, what's happened is, as you know, is that the outbreak has continued to spread within the region. It's primarily been in uh, South Asia, uh, India being the uh, accounting for the lion's share of cases, but also you know, other countries like Bangladesh and Pakistan. And then in Southeast Asia, you have um, Indonesia and the Philippines. And so because of that, I mean, so that three, the three months, yes, some countries were able to contain it, including China, but for many other countries, we're clearly, we've clearly gone beyond that. And so we were expecting when we do the calculations that, oh, you know, this, it's going to be bigger because, uh, you know, it's a longer containment period. But offsetting that is the fact that, um, yes, um, outbreaks have become worse, containment will take longer, but um, what's happened is that many economies have basically eased up on the restrictions. So, and that's allowed the kind of normalization that we were expecting to see. So you, you have, yes, longer uh, lockdowns, but not as stringent as what we saw in the second quarter. And so the initial estimates we've done so far suggest that the numbers won't be that far off from the ones you mentioned earlier. Um, what we will see, though, is that especially on the um, tourism side, for example, things are really spilling over to next year. So, uh, you know, we're now uh, at six months since, you know, since March, and most uh, international travel bans are still in place. Flight, uh, flights are, you know, are um, much reduced, and basically tourism arrivals are like at you know, 90 or to 100% below where they normally would be uh, from a year ago. And uh, so, if you think about it on the tourism side, three to six months is really out of the question now. So six months is basically the minimum. And uh, we, so we have three scenarios, three, it might be six months, nine months or 12 months on the, you know, for how long uh, travel bans might be in place. And on top of that, you have a clear sign that even if these travel bans are lifted, a lot of uh, travelers have basically said, you know, we're not going to travel that quickly uh, soon after uh, those bans are lifted. So I, 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 you probably saw it, that IATA survey that came out, they've been doing it every two months. The last one <clears throat> basically found that, you know, 55% of respondents said that uh, they would, even after travel bans are lifted, they would wait six months to a year or more before resuming travel. So especially for tourism-dependent economies, that's going to be a big hit. No, absolutely, Abdul. I mean, we worry about that. I want to sort of try to pull together three uh, sort of risk factors. Some of it is, of course, you know, mentioned in your report. So you guys talk about the external environment and how external demand pull would be weak. But on that issue, the recent trade numbers coming out of Asia for July and August have been fairly encouraging. Uh, and perhaps it's related to the fact that China has turned around, but perhaps also worldwide uh, goods demand does not seem to be that poor. And perhaps because of the low energy prices, it's helping. So I, I want to sort of keep that in mind while I try to absorb your point about tourism sector not coming back being a very big external risk. That if you put that two together, that, you know, a, a dismal tourism outlook, but perhaps slightly better than expected trade outlook, net net is the outlook a little better. So that's question one. And the second question is that if you don't have much hope from trade and tourism externally, if you have a large enough country, could you then rely on 
domestic tourism. So like we have seen in the case of Vietnam where domestic flights are up on a year-on-year -year right. basis because there's a lot of domestic tourism going on. So I'm throwing two things at you. One is this offset from goods and trade over tourism. The other is the scale of the country. I mean, would you like to comment on both of those? Sure, sure. Um, so trade really has been interesting. So we did see a very sharp and sudden decline in both global and regional trade uh, in you know April and May. As you've mentioned, that seems to have bottomed out and we've seen a strong recovery over you know, the June, July data. What's also interesting when you see that pattern is that Asia uh, you know, experienced the same dip, but the magnitude was not as sharp as, in, uh, as, in, as for, the, for the world as a whole, or if you compare, let's say, to the major advanced economies. And when you look more closely at that, um, one, there are a couple of explanations. Um, basically, there are certain sectors which, um, which have helped buttress the, the overall um, effect of you know, just collapsing demand. So obviously, health supplies, you know, uh, PPEs, medical equipment, and the like. You see countries like uh, China, um, I think uh, Korea and Taiwan have been uh, exporting more of that. Um, so that's one. And, and so that's, that you've actually experienced positive year-on-year -year growth in that, uh, in that uh, sector. The other is electronics. Uh, as we know, uh, you know there was, uh, there's a global electronic cycle and that they went through a downturn last year. Uh, there's been a recovery uh, just from that, you know, from, because of that global cycle, it was already uh, in the process of recovering late last year and in the early months of this year. But I think in addition to that, you're seeing an increased demand for electronics products and devices because of the lockdown. You have, uh, you know, again, many of us are working from home um, and there's an increase in e-commerce and things like that. So there's that additional factor. So that's helped buttress. And so, yes, that does... Um, help uh, soften the blow. Of course, what happens is you have very different economies in the region. So that, that benefit accrues primarily to you know, economies in East Asia and Southeast Asia, whereas um, you know, a lot of uh, the tourism-dependent economies, and in particular, small ones like you know, the Maldives in South Asia or Fiji in the Pacific, uh, they don't have that. So they're, they're looking at declines of you know, 20% uh, or more um, so, uh, but uh, whereas, well, so Thailand would be one example, I guess, where you have both and the, those factors may be offsetting. So that was your first question. The second question was uh, what again? <laughs> About the scale of countries that if you're large enough, uh, and even if you don't uh -huh. have yes. tourism going on, could you reorient some of your tourism to domestic tourism? Yes, and so you are seeing that. In fact, we have a box in our report where we talk about travel bubbles. Uh, and so my, my colleague, Matthias Helble, did that analysis. Um, what he, there, there were two parts to that. The first was, you know, in the absence of, uh, or in the, given the complete shutdown in international travel, what is the potential for domestic tourism to, to step in? And um, so, so that's the first part of his calculation. Uh, to what extent is it possible? And, and yes, so there are countries, Vietnam being one of them, where that does go a long way into um, helping uh, soften the blow from the loss in international tourists. Of course, uh, this assumes that you are that you have mobility within the country. So Vietnam has that because they've been able to keep their crisis contained. Well, you know, you had the second outbreak again recently, but even that's been uh, uh, been contained. It looks like um, so. You you have countries like Vietnam, but then uh, on the other hand, you have countries where either. Uh, 
even internal mobility is restricted. India would be one example of that. Um, but uh, then you also have, again, as I mentioned, those uh, highly tourism dependent economy, or uh, uh, yeah, it gets to the issue of size that you were mentioning. Uh, you have island economies almost solely tourism, solely dependent on tourism, and for them, you know, there's there's no substitute. But with the interesting case, the, the interesting thing there, Timur, is that uh, um, if you think about the Pacific economies, you would have th thought that they would just open up, right? We need it, but they've actually made the decision to stay closed because their health systems are also non-existent. Many Pacific island economies need to. Uh, fly their seriously ill patients to, you know, Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, or even the Philippines uh, to get treatment. And so for them, even though the costs are so high of staying closed, uh, they've made the decision to stay closed at least until next year, because uh, uh, by their measure, if they had an outbreak, uh, they they would really be in uh, serious trouble. It's, it's absolutely fascinating the way these dynamics are working out. I was just reading about Israel, a small country with a very strong healthcare system, but and, and they seem to have overcome COVID-19. But then the outward tourism, Israel is going to Europe for vacation, brought the virus back again, and there's a resurgence there. Oh, wow. So, so, so you know, I mean, it is so hard to sort of, you know, declare victory till you have a vaccine or something, and therefore this prolonged lockdown, as painful as they are, uh, there is some uh, sort of wisdom in that. Um, Abdul, yeah. the other uh, risk factor that was um, uh, that nobody talks about these days, it seems like you know, we're in this post-inflation world. Um, even if we have supply shortages, even if we have um, you know, US-China uh, trade tension spilling over into a fragmentation of supply chain, nobody worries about inflation. So for the time being, your view also on inflation is very benign for Asia? Yes, uh, I, I yes, I would I would say so. Um, again, uh, one the uh, the 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 domestic uh, the, the so the demand weakness uh, seems to be outweighing it for the region as a whole. There are in in other in some economies, the supply disruptions are such that they're they're enough to cause an uptick in our inflation forecasts. But for the region as a whole, uh, yes, uh, we see the domestic demand. Uh, yeah, the demand weakness. Both domestic and external, um, really uh, keeping a lid. I mean, and again, in many places, you, you've labor markets have taken a hit. So even on the wage front, there's not much upward pressure on wages. Um, there's the, uh, in you know, as, as you know, several economies in the region have uh, um, started doing the uh, you know what what might be called the quantitative easing, um, and so there you know so there's been some worries about you know will this be inflationary um one of the things i take um as a positive is that macro policy making in general but all monetary policy uh in particular has been quite good in the region over the last two decades and so i i do have uh trust in many of these central banks that you know they're doing this because these are extraordinary times that need extraordinary uh, measures, but that when when time comes, that they they will be able to uh, withdraw this uh, uh, the stimulus that they're putting forth. Yeah, that would be the biggest test of uh, resolve. That at one point do you say that you know I'm ready to move on, and therefore I will consolidate. 
I have a feeling it's not going to be for a couple of years. Um, but the <laughs> yes. other issue uh, that we always, I mean, you and I both worked at the IMF and this used to be our butter, was the external funding question that the outlook for current account in the region and if regional economies can sort of fund their needs. Um, so I suppose between low energy price and weak import demand, uh, current account concerns are also not exactly paramount as far as you're concerned. Yes, I mean, for the region as a whole, actually, they really offset, you know, it's weaker exports, but also weaker imports. Um, and uh, the, we, for the region as a whole, we do see the current account balance remaining stable this year and next. Uh, it does differ. So Central Asia, where, which is primarily uh, composed of commodity exporters, they're taking a hit. And so um, their uh, current account deficit is expected to widen. Uh, another uh, sub-region where the current account uh, balances are expected to worsen would be the Pacific economies, again, highly tourism dependent. Uh, they're basically taking a, a, main hit, a big hit to their main export. And so, um, yes, it's a, but, you know, those are both relatively small for the region as a whole uh, that um, uh, we do expect that uh, it, that, that external balances aren't going to, to take a big swing in, in the uh, major economies in the re region. India would be one case actually where given the extent of uh, domestic decline, you actually see um, a bigger uh, contraction in imports. And so uh, the external balance may improve somewhat. The, the Philippines is the same case. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, all, all of these are sort of temporary. And then we expect things to return to, uh, to, to uh, move in the opposite direction next year. But Abdul, for countries like India and Philippines who have traditionally run large trade deficits, uh, the big solace has been transfer payments, you know, re remittances. Uh, right. What's your sense of how remittances are turning out? Because I think six months ago, the view was that we will see an utter collapse in remittances this year. It hasn't been that bad, correct? That's right. Um, I have to say, when we started writing, and in fact, the first numbers, uh, had indicated that you know remittances across the board were coming down, and what's happened is that in some economies you've seen a rebound. Um, Bangladesh has seen an uptick, um, other countries as well, and so I th I I think it's a, it's a couple of things. One is that um, the migrant workers are really a necessity in many places where they where they work. So think about the Middle East. Um, and their dependence on it. So to the extent that they need to get their, you know, that, that it's, it's critical for the economies, many of these, eco many, many uh, economies that are reliant on migrant labor are basically bringing, the, bring, bringing them back in. Obviously with, uh, with, the, with proper safety protocols, you know, quarantine first, et cetera. Um, so we, it's, you know, it, there are economic forces that, uh, um, that, Will will basically uh, drive a return in remittances, and then uh, of course on top of that you have that remit to to the extent that migrant workers are able to send money home. So assuming that they do have jobs or that these jobs return, um, it is actually a strong it, that there's a th there is a tendency for it to sort of to be countercyclical in that uh, when the their home when when their families and their home countries are are taking a hit, that's when they send. Uh, more remittances home. So, so it, because this was a global shock, um, we expected 
that uh, that's those are the times when remittance actually remittances actually become pro-cyclical relative to the to the home countries where remittances are sent and you did see that in the first couple of months during the peak of the covid-19 crisis but what you're now seeing is that as uh, migrant workers are able to reestablish their incomes, then they're sending money back home to support. Abdul, this conversation is taking me back to a past conversation with Francis Tequila at uh, BSP when he explained to me the similar thing that as far as Filipino recipients of remittance was concerned, they only cared about the peso amount. So if the peso were to appreciate, mm -hmm. they would expect the uh, family member overseas to send more dollars back. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were hedged that they would always get the same peso amount. Um, right. It's extraordinary that despite the uncertainty and the hardship that the foreign workers are facing with work stoppages and themselves being exposed to the virus that they're uh, holding on. Uh, I mean, Asians are lucky in, in that regard. Um, uh, Abdul, so far we've talked in general, so maybe we go a bit uh, on a country by country basis. Um, I'm not going to ask you to rank the poor countries. I want you to rank the good countries. So which country, in your view, scores highly in dealing with the pandemic? and that doesn't necessarily mean that that country is also dealing well with the economic side. So maybe you're going to give me two answers, country that is doing very well dealing with the pandemic and a country that's dealing very well with the livelihood issue. Right. Actually, I won't give you two answers. I'll give you one. <laughs> because, uh, again, sort of going back to what I had said earlier. So, OK, let's, let's start with those that have done well with addressing their pandemics. A lot of these countries are in East Asia, so China, Korea, Taiwan. Uh, basically, were able to get their uh, their outbreaks under control. So China and Korea, in particular, they were one of the, the two countries that really had uh, the outbreaks early on in the first quarter. Um, but again, they were able to get it down. Um, in Korea and Taiwan's case, a lot of it was again through using, um, you know, again massive testing, tracing, treatment, uh, and. Uh, leveraging technology you know there was a and so because they were able to do that um they were able to get their outbreaks under control without stifling mobility so much and that allowed economic activity to, to continue outside of uh, east asia vietnam would would be the example uh, they had an outbreak um early on also but uh, they were very, very quickly able to get it under control. It stayed low for the longest time, and um, they had a, an outbreak again recently. But then we're also were able to get it under control again. And so, and again, the, of the countries um, that I mentioned, uh, you know, three of them, uh, China, Vietnam, and Taiwan, are expected to post positive growth. Uh, this year, and so it's really not. Uh, it, there's it, it really drives home the message that there there are ways to both contain the uh, the the outbreak and to allow your economy uh, to uh, to continue working even in the short run. And obviously, in the long run, it's there's there's really no trade-off because unless you uh, are able to really get the health uh, the health crisis under control, you won't have a sustainable recovery. Um, what I think what happens. Many people think that think about this trade-off, and you do get that trade-off when you use very blunt instruments like large-scale lockdowns and things like you know, uh, you know blanket stay-at-home policies or workplace and school closures. That's when you know if that's the only instrument you're using, then yes, then that's when you struggle and you have uh, that question of okay, I can bring 
the number of daily cases down, but at the at the cost of uh, you know uh, rising uh, uh, rising unemployment and a bigger hit to GDP. Right. So, Abdul, in my view, I mean, countries. I mean, it is important that you have the capabilities, but you're also important to have compliance. Uh, I mean, I think we have seen this issue more prevalent in the West than in Asia, where even if you have strong capabilities, uh, people simply don't trust the system or don't listen, and then they go mm -hmm. out, and 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 then the outbreak remains substantial. Um, and, and I fully agree with you that the trade-off doesn't have to be so stark. And I think now that we know, six months into this pandemic, more about how to keep the risks down, my feeling is that even if economies see resurgence of virus going forward, uh, activities in agriculture, manufacturing, and mining will not go back to the lockdown levels. We know how to maintain social distancing and wear masks and carry on those activities without shutting things down. So which is why I sort of concur with yeah. your view that uh, even if the duration of the crisis is going to be longer, uh, we're not going to go back to the, the battle days of April and May. Right, right. So again, again, there's a lot of learning by doing. I mean, you, it's it's hard to you know easy to uh, you know do Monday morning quarterbacking and say, yo, they it, it was wrong to do that. You know, first of all, the the large scale lockdowns actually bought many countries time um it was you know it's it's not that easy to ramp up uh, th those other measures uh like testing tracing and uh, increased health capacity um and so it bought some time and some countries have used it uh, to varying degrees um one of the things we have in our report actually is a analysis by my colleagues uh Rana Hassan and his team where what they do is they look at uh, they they take a sort of micro dive at, at specific policy measures everything from you know uh, um uh, stay at home and you know how much time is spent at home, tracing, testing, school closures, workplaces, workplace closures, public transit, transit closures, mask use, and they look at two elements: how well is how well are each of these measures, um, how effective are they at um, stemming outbreak transmission, which they measure by the rep, uh, effective reproduction rate (RT), um, and then they also look at uh, what they, what impact they have on economic activity um, and. Uh, so that report's also coming out soon, although we, we have a teaser in our report on it. And so th there you can see that, again, some policies are good at both stemming the outbreak um, and uh, keeping the economic costs at the minimum, whereas others, yes, they also work, work uh, on the outbreak, but uh, again, at large economic costs. So it, I think we're, as, the, as this crisis moves forward, policymakers really have the opportunity to learn how to uh, how to manage this so that you know again it's not a trade-off and you can have uh, you can get the outbreak under control while allowing economies to reopen. Right, and and you briefly touched on the issue of uh, seasonality. <coughs> That's the big question as the you know colder countries in the region start entering a phase when people stay indoors and what happens there. And then the right. third issue is of course uh, I mean the sec first issue was the control measure, second is seasonality, and the third is the herd immunity issue, which remains a nebulous holy grail. I don't think any country <laughs> in the world has achieved it. And I think the cost of achieving that is also uh, pretty high. So let's hope that between seasonality and control measures, you know, we can sort of figure out how to deal with this thing. Um, right. Abdul, uh, earlier uh, when we were talking about the uh, overall risks, uh, one thing that I sort of did not uh, talk about in detail was the ASEAN region. So you, you mentioned the risk of US-China trade war being a risk for 
trade and uh, sentiment and investment and so on. Um, we know that countries like Korea, Taiwan, perhaps even Japan, we might be inadvertent beneficiaries of the trade war as more electronics trade get diverted through them, perhaps in Vietnam. But within ASEAN, is it really a very big deal if uh, China-US tensions persist? So we've done analysis on this. Well, you know, as you know, the, the trade conflict, I think now we're close to basically 1,000 days of this trade conflict, which started in January 2018. And um, yeah, so we've been doing analysis on this, quantifying the costs to the region of the trade conflict. And um, to get to your question, the, the, okay, so the biggest lo losers from the conflict are the two protagonists, China and the U.S. So the loss to China, as you know, the tariffs um, really didn't go away even with a phase one uh, trade agreement. Uh, they just put on hold further increases. Right now, I think basically about uh, two thirds of Chinese exports to the U.S. are still under uh, some tariff uh, with an average tariff of about 22%, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, in the opposite direction, it's about 80% of U.S. exports to China that are under some sort of tariff with an average tariff rate of about 18%. So it's the, the costs are still there. And um, the country, those two countries are suffering as a result. What surprised us when we did the analysis uh, last year on this was, you know, so we knew, Okay, on the one hand, you know, Southeast Asian countries and other East Asian countries, they sell intermediate uh, inputs to China as part of Factory Asia. And so they'd take a hit because of that. On the other hand, they could benefit from both trade and production uh, uh, redirection or relocation. And when we actually ran the numbers, what we found was that that second uh, factor, the positive factor, the trade and production uh, redirection, actually for these for, for some of these economies was large enough uh, to actually offset the negative effects of their you know intermediate uh, um, trade to china and so yeah as you mentioned uh, vietnam for example that was one of that was one country that particularly stood out because of the similarity of its exports uh, to what what china exported to the us and and, you, and indeed you saw that in the numbers last year and uh, uh, that that continues that uh, um, vietnam's exports to the us are still growing uh, positively and that's it's, it's one of those things that's sort of uh, why they're why they're doing okay at least uh, in in vietnam's case even and it it's, it extends actually beyond southeast asia bangladesh has seen uh, garments exports um, also benefit uh, government's exports to the U.S. also benefit because of the tariffs being imposed on China. So um, overall, I would say for Southeast Asian countries, yes, it's not that big a deal um, because you have those offsetting factors. Um, and they have basically what, what's happened is that you've had that acceleration of, you know, FDI into other uh, emerging Asian economies, including in Southeast Asia, including, especially the, low in, the, the lower income ones like Cambodia, um, where uh, you know you have factories relocating. Um, obviously, if this this could escalate further, and in ways that we don't uh, exp uh, you know that are difficult to anticipate, the, the technology war is much more complicated to analyze than the trade war. And you can imagine how uh, some of the negative effects of an escalation would would be net negative for these other countries as well. So it's a, uh, at, as of this point, it hasn't been a big deal. 
if it escalates, it's it's really hard to say. I would say that uh, the negatives can easily increase for the other countries. Right, and especially the trade and services and the access to various social tech platforms or fintech platforms, if those things are right. in the way. Uh, I think some economies in Southeast Asia, I can think of Vietnam and Indonesia as two really exciting spaces where a lot of fintech activity and innovation are happening. Uh, you don't want them to get stifled because of all these cross-border tensions. Uh, no, no point well taken. That's right. Abdul, um, I want to talk about something that you alluded to earlier, that in your uh, second chapter of the Asian Development Outlook, uh, you had a whole section on wellness. Uh, walk us through that, please. Sure, I'll, I can be brief about it. But the so we actually started this chapter last year, even before COVID-19 hit. And so it's uh, and it turned out to be very timely. Um, but to the, let me define, first of all, what we mean by wellness. So wellness is sort of the active pursuit of holistic health. It's distinct, it's related to, but distinct from, you know, the traditional medical paradigm, which is getting you from negative health, you know, addressing illness to neutral health. So uh, wellness is really getting us uh, to uh, even better than neutral, right? So how, how can we maintain healthy lives? And, and it really is multidimensional. It's, it talks not just about physical well uh, wellness, but also there's a mental, social, and emotional aspect to it. It's also distinct from, you know, well-being and happiness, uh, which are, you know, uh, subjective uh, measures. Here, it's really, uh, you know, at, um, uh, physical and um, mental wellness in particular. These are, you know, physical health and um, mental health are things people recognize and. It, they're actually part of the sustainable sustainable development goals. So I think it's, it's uh, SDG three, which talks about uh, you know healthy lives for all at all ages, and so we focused on that. And you know, obviously, wellness, both physical and mental, and other dimensions as well, has taken a hit during this COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, so you can you see surveys uh, talking about you know mental distress being on the rise across many economies. The UN says we're uh, in the midst of a mental health crisis, even physical health has taken a to has uh, taken a beating. A lot of us. Uh, so again, it, many surveys point to uh, lack of physical activity being one of the biggest um, uh, um, uh, complaints uh, people have uh, during uh, this pandemic. And so, um, what we identify in that study. So the first thing we do is we sort of we say, okay, what's the state of wellness in Asia? So uh, my colleagues constructed an an index of wellness. So again, there are many um, similar measures like the uh, UN's uh, uh, Human Development Index, except that those measures also take into account things like incomes. Uh, and we wanted to focus just on wellness. So it it looks at uh, you know physical wellness, life expectancy, mortality, etc. Um, mental wellness, social wellness, et cetera. And we construct those measures to give us a sense of how countries are doing. Um, the other thing we want, we look at is the wellness economy. So the, the parts of the Asian economy that that um, contribute to uh, you know, uh, um, pro providing wellness uh, to, to, to people. And one of the interesting things we found is that that's been, that's actually a, a pretty large um, share of the economy. It's about 11% of regional GDP, and it's been growing um, pretty rapidly over the, the over recent years. So about 10% on average. And so it really, and, and this was even 
prior to COVID. Um, and you know, the drivers of that growth in the wellness economy include you know, rising incomes, uh, the fact that we we're becoming, you know, the, the rising urbanization and the rise of office jobs means people are, uh, there's a more sedentary lifestyle and therefore people are trying to figure out how to, um, how they can, you know, be, be more healthy. Then you also have the fact that Asia as a whole is already starting to age, again, differing across economies. So that those factors were already driving demand for wellness even prior to the pandemic and are, our guess is that with the pandemic, as you as we emerge from this, there there will be a renewed focus on you know it's really important to stay healthy. As we know, though many of those who uh, were hardest hit by uh, COVID nineteen were those who had pre existing conditions. Um, and so, um, in terms of policies, uh, there are four sort of key things that uh, governments need to focus on. In terms of one is the, the providing a healthy built environment, and this includes everything from you know walkable cities um, to so so encouraging activity uh, you know physical activity even in your day-to-day -day, even setting aside recreational uh, physical activity but you know are you able to walk around is there green space how is the pollution um, uh, are there social spaces for gathering so even beyond uh, the physical wellness social wellness um, do you have think are you encouraged to sort of be out so for mental wellness even things like you know public art um, so uh, a healthy built environment on the one hand, um, encouraging physical activity, again, by providing parks uh, for uh, exercise uh, or, or other recreational facilities. Um, obviously, the, the um, encouraging healthy eating is also an important component. And the last thing we discuss in the chapter is workplace wellness, again, because uh, um, Asia is actually um, is doing much worse in terms of providing workplace wellness than the rest of the world. I think uh, only one in 20 Asian workers benefits from workplace wellness or has as workplace wellness uh, uh, benefits, um, whereas in uh, for, for the global average, I think it's something like one in 10. So um, yeah, uh, I'd invite your listeners to take a look at that report. There's a lot more than I can get into in this podcast. No, it's actually an absolutely fascinating report, and I myself have learned a lot reading this. So, so great job. See, Abdul, 10 years ago, this issue was not paramount in our minds, but as Asia sort of transitions from low income to middle income, I think people's aspirations are also changing. It's not just about getting a job. It's not just That's about right. consuming some basic things. People want a broader set of things to consume, including cleaner things and safer things and sustainable things. So I think you've done a great job of highlighting that point. And I have a feeling you would have to come back to this issue over and over again as you spend your time in ADV. <laughs> yep, yep, I, I think so. This will just be, again, it's, a, it's, it's something that will just become more important as Asia progresses. Yeah, absolutely. Abdul, uh, thank you so much for your time and insights and coming on our show. Thank you very much, Timer, for having me. Great pleasure. And it's nice to talk to you again. <laughs> Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners also. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 30 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.